Heavenly Father, we bow before you now, thankful for all the things that we've already sung and celebrated and heard. We remember that in your Son, Jesus Christ, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So we ask now that you would enlighten our minds by your Holy Spirit and grant us that reverence and humility without which no one can understand your truth. Through that same Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Amen. Well, good morning. Uh, if you don't know me, I'm Mike, one of the pastors here. I'm speaking, I'll be speaking on that passage that Claire just read uh, for the next wee while. Um, for many people, last year, 2022, was actually a grim year uh, because of health reasons. We had, we'd come through the COVID pandemic, and then so many people were hit with a, just a wave of health problems, weren't they? I mean, it was, it was, it, it was sort of almost worse or more unexpected than, than the pandemic. I've never known so many people with cancer. Uh, at one point, three members of our staff team, church staff team, three members had a parent with bowel cancer. And the staff team actually had six people. You know, that's so, it, it just came out of nowhere. My, my own dad uh, discovered that he had bowel cancer and, uh, thank God, found out quite early and was taken into the care of a really good team at Kingston Hospital. As a consultant called Mr. Bloom and his fantastic team, and they got onto it quickly. They did all they needed to do. They did the biopsy, which is kind of a grim thing, isn't it? So they're going to take a bit of your body away and study it and discovered, yes, it was tumors and it did need operating, and then they had the op, and first of all, they tried to do keyhole surgery, and in my dad's case, that didn't work, they couldn't get it, so they did what he called the full Frankenstein, and he showed me as well. But it was worth it to get rid of the cancer, and they took out a section of his bowel, stitched up the two ends, and a year later, at the age of 80, praise God, he's clear. See, to deal with cancer, you need someone skilled with a razor-sharp knife. But you also need gentle care and compassion. Now, by nature, we all have spiritual tumors. That's the way the Bible depicts us. We, you and I, are not born a neutral, blank, sheet, of, a white sheet of paper, you know, with... with, with with complete unbiased and kind of a new, morally neutral. We're not born like that, even. And we're certainly not like that as we go through life. Last Sunday night, Pastor Steve took us through one of the, the doctrines of, of the faith, which is the doctrine of depravity. It can be called pervasive depravity. And it means that by, by our inheritance as, as, as men and women, boys and girls, and by our constant use and practice, we are corrupted throughout ourselves from the mind to the will and all the rest of it. So when a person comes to Jesus Christ in faith and they receive the Holy Spirit, something dramatic and, and unique happens, which is that they receive a new nature. They are born again by the Spirit. So it is a mistake for us to think about a Christian having two natures. And I think a lot of us do think like that. 
And some of that actually comes from our Bible version, the, the New International Version, which is a very good translation in many ways. But unfortunately, the, the NIV, certainly in its 1984 edition, talked about the old nature. So you have this impression, oh, I've got an old nature and I've got a new nature. But that's not what the Bible actually says. The language of old nature is misleading. You only have one nature now, and that's the new nature, the spiritual nature. But there remains sin indwelling. Sin's still alive and living down there in the human heart. And in the Bible language, it's not you've got an old nature, it's you've got flesh. He calls it flesh. Not that there's anything wrong with the physical world, far from it. But this flesh is like a computer that gets a virus. Have you ever had a computer that was hacked into? Or, you know, somebody opens an email or sends you a file that's corrupted. And goodness knows where these people get off. But these clever um, nerds spend all their time writing programs to corrupt other people's computers. And then you have to take it to a shop or a specialist or a, a Mac genius. Uh, although... Sidebar, Macs almost never get viruses, just saying. And, um, and they have to sort it out. But the nature of the computer itself isn't that it's got two separate hard drives. It has the one drive, but you can get a virus on it. And so the human, the spiritual experience for us as Christians is a bit like that. We still have this corruption, this virus, this flesh on the hard drive. Or to go back to the health image, spiritual tumors. And tumors... Cancerous tumors must be shrunk and destroyed or they may grow and kill you. And we all know that. See, it's the same thing in the spiritual realm. Hence the serious warnings from the pastor who wrote this letter to the Hebrews. We're going to find this. We already found it already the first few weeks. Again and again that he comes in with some wonderful teaching and then he gives a really serious warning and the warnings get more and more somber as the book goes on because he's saying, wake up and listen. Now in this passage that Claire just read for us, it's telling us that we need two things to deal with the cancerous tumors of our hearts and lives. We need a razor sharp knife and we need gentle care. You need both. You need a razor sharp knife and you need gentle, compassionate care. And Hebrews tells us not only do we need both, but we have both. In his kindness, God has provided both of these things that we need for health and life and joy and flourishing. The razor sharp knife is God's word. And the gentle care is the great high priest, Jesus Christ. Now, that's two points today. You probably guessed what they are already. One is the razor-sharp knife. Two is the great high priest. Listen, the first point is so challenging, it might shake you in your seats. You might feel wretched. You might feel scared, bless you. You might actually want to leave this church halfway through the sermon. Don't do it. Because the second point, the second point will bring us the, the, the gentle high priest, Okay? So point number one, the razor-sharp knife. Has it come up? Look at that. These guys are great. They got it. Thank you. Now, my 50th birthday was during the pandemic. That's right. I did say 50. I know I don't look it. And we were living in the great city of Manchester. Not going to mention any football stuff here today, okay? Uh, 
we were living in this great city, but Manchester had loads of lockdowns. It was like never we got out of one lockdown and we went into another lockdown. It was completely wretched. My church was out of its building for over a year. But my marvellous wife determined that she was going to make this 50th birthday a special day, even though we couldn't actually see anyone. And I had discovered a new hobby during lockdown. It's my only hobby, apart from loading the dishwasher. And this hobby is cooking. And I really got into it because I had a bit of time. I was in the house, couldn't go out. And I began to love cooking. So my wife obtained a really special gift. Really special gift. I later discovered how expensive the gift was. It was a set of Japanese chef knives. Ooh. So I went from Ikea to Japanese chef knives in one day. And my Ikea knives were very blunt, a regular bone of contention with my father-in-law. You know, you're trying to hack through, saw through a loaf of soft bread. This knife is so blunt, suddenly I got these Japanese chef knives. And within a few days, I had sliced the end of my thumb or finger two or three times. <laughs> I was walking around with all these plasters on, and I hadn't even felt it. Ah, there it is. Because the knives were razor sharp. Now look at chapter 4, verse 12 and 13 again. If you've closed your Bible and you've got the church one, it's page 1203, page 1203, Hebrews 4. For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow, it judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Wow! This is talking about the Old Testament and the message of Jesus. It is the word of God and it's alive, active and very, very sharp. Now, the Bible, this library of books we call the Bible, is really the book of books. Um, since uh, uh, the age of 18, I've actually spent eight years in tertiary education. That's why I can barely change a light bulb. And those eight years in tertiary education were all studying literature of various kinds. So I've spent eight years of my adult life immersed in studying literature. And some of that time was spent studying the Bible, and some was spent studying great classics of the English speaking world, and what I have found through personal experience is that the Bible is the book of books. If I didn't believe this, and if I hadn't been told it, I would, I would actually probably have come to the conclusion that the Bible is God's word just by reading it, because it's unique. It's so powerful. It's just different. The experience of reading it is so different to any other kind of book, and that's been my experience, and maybe some of you know that. The Bible has this Strange way of working, and I'm going to go through three P's really quickly. It is personal, it is powerful, and it is piercing. And if you're new to the Christian faith or you're just exploring, we're really glad you're here. And one of the things we would just say is, you just open the Bible and you'll notice it. And a very old writer called John Calvin said, when you open the Bible, it's like you open the lips of God. It's personal, it's powerful, it's piercing. Quickly then, verse 12 says, the word of God is alive. Do you see that? The word of God is alive, or sometimes translated, living, the living word. He says the Bible is alive. Now, why is that? It's because a living person 
is revealed to us in the Bible. A living person comes, comes to us when we open the Bible. God's word, when you read it, can be accompanied and empowered by, actually, the Holy Spirit, God himself, animating, illuminating, bringing to life this book. So it's not just a normal reading experience. When we truly encounter God's word, we actually encounter the living God. And it's actually only through this word that we can meet God, that we can learn from God, and we can actually have a relationship with God. You can't get that from looking at the stars and the sun and the moon and nature, as great as it is. All you can get from that is a sense that there is an eternal, divine, powerful being. You don't get any more than that. Okay? These things don't have, they are mute witnesses. But the Bible, this special revelation of God, means you can actually have a relationship with him. A theologian called John Frame wrote this. When we encounter the word of God, we encounter God. His word, indeed, is his personal presence. That's bold, isn't it? God's word is his personal presence. Whenever God's word is spoken, heard, or read, God himself is there. That's why these Sunday meetings are so important in life. Because actually, when we come together, God is here when we open his word. And you know that. Some of you know that. That's that's why it's so powerful. Now, listen, the, let me say this, especially if you've come from a, a Muslim background or you have Muslim friends or neighbors. This book itself, the, the, the physical object, is not sacred. There's nothing sacred about the cover, the pages, the kind of ink used, the, the, the hardback, the softback, the physical object. Nothing sacred about that. But when we take the content of its message and the words themselves take root in our lives, God is meeting us. And the reason why Muslim friends find this hard to, to kind of conceive of is that for them, the physical book of the Quran is, is holy. The physical book. You, the Quran should always be on the highest shelf in the house, and you never write in the Quran. You certainly wouldn't leave it on the floor and highlight it and do all the scruffy things that you do. But Christians can do that because it's not the physical book, but the words that are holy. God is meeting us, and that makes the Bible unique, and that means it's different from every other book ever written. I've read a lot of books, several books, not a lot, several books about Sir Winston Churchill, and I've even visited his house a couple of times in Kent. And Winston Churchill's a great character. Uh, you can, and listen to some blogs about Winston Churchill. You can read a book about Winston, you can hear some blogs, but you will never meet him. So Winston is dead. But this is not the case with the word of God because the author is alive and speaks through it. By the power of the Spirit, God reveals himself to us in the scripture and so we can actually meet God's presence in his word. This is a personal living book. And when we read it, Christian brother and sister, when you read the Bible, you recognize it contains the voice of someone you love and trust. So any encounter with the Bible is a serious matter. Rudolf Bultmann was one of the most influential theologians of the 20th century. He was a German theologian, unfortunately very liberal. 
Bultmann was a great scholar, world class. And in his retirement, he, went, he attended a small church in the middle of nowhere with a young pastor who was not actually a very good preacher. Everybody knew that. So occasionally, somebody asked him, Bultmann, why, just don't want to be rude, but why do you go to that church? You know? And Bultmann said this, because of the young pastor, every time he approaches the Bible, it's like he's about to, he's like he's opening a ticking bomb. I don't know what's going to happen. When we encounter the word, we're encountering the Lord of the universe, and that is a magnificent thing. He wants to speak to you. Could that shift the way you think about reading the Bible? It's personal. Secondly, it's powerful. Verse 12 again says that it is alive and active. Active. The Greek word here is where we get our word energy from. Are you feeling energetic today? You're a little bit sluggish, I think. We're all struggling with the heat. If you want to take off a layer, some of you can do that. Energy, this word means the practical expression of capacity. It's effective, it's powerful, it's active. And all through the Bible we get this kind of language about God's words. Right, right back in Genesis chapter 1, you remember the creation account. In the beginning, the world was shape formless and empty, and God himself saw it, and the Spirit hovered over the waters. And what did God do? He spoke. And God said, let there be light. And there was Thank you, you are still awake. God said it was so. You see that, that, that this is not just words, these are active words, they're actions. I'm going to just read a bit of a favorite psalm, which is, if you don't know this psalm, let me tell you, read it on your commute this week, read it when you're doing the dishes, read it when you're changing a nappy. This is Psalm 29. The voice of the Lord is over the waters, the God of glory thunders. The Lord thunders over the mighty waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is majestic. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The Lord breaks in pieces the cedars of Lebanon. The voice of the Lord strikes with flashes of lightning. The voice of the Lord shakes the desert. The voice of the Lord twists the oaks and strips the forests bare. And in his temple all cry glory. You see what it's doing? God speaks, and it's like this power is unleashed, like lightning connecting to the earth, or an oak tree, strong tree being twisted, and all the bark flies off. I don't know what's going to happen. Everyone shouts, glory. See, he's powerful. And of course, we know how that power works because we've seen the ministry of Jesus Christ, who could speak, and someone would be instantly healed of a disease that they'd had for 12 years who could speak, and a storm would calm down, a storm that was so powerful, experienced fishermen were terrified, who could speak, and a person whose life was completely disintegrated with, with demonic influence was, was delivered back to sanity right there. He could even speak and raise the dead. That's his words. And Hebrews, back in chapter 1, said, he sustains the entire universe by his powerful word. This word doesn't just say things, it does things. It is mighty, it's transforming, it's building, it's convicting, it's encouraging, it's rebuking, it's exposing, it gives light to us to be wise, it shines out the path of our lives, it changes our hearts, it changes our destiny. 
This word is powerful. Apostle Paul writes to Timothy, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man or woman of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Every good work. Self-help books might give you a few tips and insights. Jordan Peterson podcasts might give you some wisdom. But people are missing out on the all-sufficient power of God's word. It is powerful enough to accomplish in our lives what is needed. It's personal, it's powerful. Thirdly, it's piercing. Now look at what this personal, powerful word does. Look back at uh, verse 12. Sharper than any double-edged sword, it penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. I find that terrifying. Don't you? The idea of everything being exposed. Now, the original readers would have recognized this reference to a double-edged sword. It's probably the Roman short sword, which was known as a gladius, hence gladiator. Not the long sword that we think of from European medieval history, you know, knights and jousting and all that, but a short, sharp, standard sword for Roman legions. It's designed to cut through enemy armor in close combat, and it was deadly and effective. God's sword is designed to cut through the hardest substance on the planet. Do you know what that is? What is the hardest substance on the planet? I actually thought it was diamonds till I looked on Google. There are six substances, at least, that are harder than diamond now. The second hardest substance in the world apparently is called bucky paper. <laughs> what? I'm not going to talk about that today. But actually, the hardest substance on the planet is the human heart. We know this, don't we? True change, lasting change, has got to start with your heart. And the only thing sharp enough to, to treat it, touch it, change it, is God's word, empowered by the Holy Spirit. This word, it says, is sharper. It pierces even to very, very fine distinctions. What's the distinction between soul and spirit? Actually, biblically, human beings are a body and soul or body and spirit. There's not, we're not three parts. But it's talking about, imagine you make this very fine distinction. There's a slight distinction between soul and spirit. It can get right in there. Even between joints and marrows, it's very precise. It's like a surgeon's knife. And unlike a literal sword, it is able to cut the soul. When Peter had finished preaching the first ever Christian sermon, it says that they were cut to the heart just by his words. So if you want to reach people, if you want to reach yourself... This is the thing to do it with. God has given us this divine instrument which has been designed to affect the heart. And actually, just getting people to read the word with you can be incredibly powerful. There's a wonderful church up in the center of London, in the square mile, the city, the financial district of London. And God has used this church very powerfully in the last, I don't know, 50, 60 years. It's called St. Helen's Bishop's Gate. It's in a part of London where all the money is made. And yet God has raised up gospel-hearted leadership for that church over many 
years. And what they have done with the, with the smartest, sharpest, savviest business people in the country is they offer them to read John's Gospel. One-to-one. And they sit down and they just start it in the beginning. And, and, and many, many people in the city of London have been converted to Jesus just through reading the word one-to-one. In fact, it's called the word one-to-one. So what they do is train all of their people in the congregation to do the word one-to-one. Chief executives of insurance companies, investment banks, big businesses, sitting down and doing the word one-to-one. It's powerful. pierces right through. Change. What does this word do when it penetrates our heart? It exposes who we really are. It judges and discerns the thoughts and attitudes and intentions of the heart. So when you read the Bible and let it penetrate, you will see things about yourself you never saw before. You will see your real intentions, motives. You'll see things about your character. And it's, it's painful but good because we have a lot of trash built up in our hearts which needs to be exposed. Get rid of the tumors. The word does surgery on you. Now, I'm going to pull back a bit here because I want to get to that second point. Remember, what we're thinking about is this writer's argument through the book has been there's a danger in spiritual life. You could drift away like a boat swept away or you could harden your heart like a sclerotic artery and and fail to enter God's rest. These are two ways about spiritually going off the boil and sliding backwards and losing the plot and maybe even losing your eternal rest. It's as serious as that. And so he said in chapter 3, if you hear his voice today, don't harden your hearts. If today you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts like they did in the wilderness because the word of God is living and active and powerful. There's the logic. If you hear his voice in the word, which is living and powerful and active and penetrating, Don't harden your hearts because this word is so important. So we need to listen to it, don't we? Not let it be blunted in our experience. But so far, this message has been quite hard-hitting, I think. Especially if those of you are suffering or struggling at the moment, you feel like a bruised reed. The former Bishop of Durham, Tom Wright, says in his commentary, there is nowhere to hide. Indeed, we shall one day have to make an account of our lives, our inner lives and our outer lives before God. Hebrews isn't a very relaxing book, is it? That's what he says. No, but a very necessary one. Now, how can such as you and I stand in the light of such a sharp word that's exposing everything about us? The answer is the main person that that word presents is Jesus. John's already told the kids that. Here he is wonderfully presented to us as a priest as well as a king. And what this means for you is all the comfort in the world. So now we're going to our second point and it's like the very doors of heaven themselves are going to swing wide open. Because the end of chapter 4 and the beginning of chapter 5 say things about Jesus that I would not have dared to say unless they were written down in the Bible, it's almost too good to be true. Because although we have this razor-sharp word, we also have a compassionate, gentle high priest. And you really need both of those, don't you? Second point, a gentle high priest, chapter 4, verse 14. 
Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to feel sympathy for our weaknesses. But we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are. Yet he did not sin. Let us then approach the throne Sorry, God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. I want to point out three things about Jesus that you may be uncomfortable with. Here they are. He was tempted, he was weak, and he wept. He was tempted, he was weak, and he wept. Firstly, he was Tempted, verse 15 says, Jesus was tempted in every way, just as we are, but he didn't sin. Now, I just want you to privately now, not, 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 don't say a word, put yourself in your mind's eye in a place of temptation or testing that you know goes on in your life, and you know what I'm talking about, even if no one else here does. There is a pinch point in your life where you are feeling the pressure and heat and something in you yearns to disobey God and grab that forbidden fruit and do that thing, even though you know it's against his expressed desire for life. It could be a person who you find so attractive that you are tempted to throw in everything else for them. It could be a secret sin or addiction, something that you would be so ashamed of if it came to light. It could be a shady area of your personal ethics, your finances, your taxes, money or property. It could be a relationship with someone where you have allowed a coldness to creep in, you're resentful of them, and now you are tempted to be bitter about that person and that bitterness will overflow to other people and corrupt them. It could be the temptation to step on another person as a platform Stepping stone in order to promote yourself in some setting. You know, there are hundreds of temptations. And the shocking thing about this verse is it says, Jesus was tempted in every way. Like you are. Do you believe that? You're tempted with same-sex attraction? Presumably, Jesus was tempted that way too at some point. He understands. You are not tempted in some way that Jesus Christ did not experience. Now, how does that change the way you can relate to him? It makes all the difference in the world. Verse 16 says, let us then approach God's throne with confidence. I can come to God's throne with this temptation because there's someone up there who knows what it's like. talking to a person this week who was struggling terribly with some sins and habits and feeling really crushed by it and just trying to bring this to bear on them and say, you know what? Jesus isn't a hard master who's looking down on you and tutting and waving his finger. He understands. He didn't sin, but there's no superiority in him about that. He understands what it's like. He was tempted. Hebrews then goes a little bit further. He was weak. And maybe this will make us uncomfortable. Verse chapter 5. Every high priest is selected from among the people and is appointed to represent the people in matters related to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He's able to deal gently 
with those who are ignorant and going astray, since he himself is subject to weakness. This is talking about a very special role in God's people in the Old Testament. This role was the high priest. You could only be in, appointed as a high priest if you were from a certain family line. Uh, it was a restricted office. You couldn't just apply for it like a job. And only uh, very few men would ever be high priests in the whole nation in, in their lifetime. Now, this concept of priesthood is, is, is like a bridge. So you want to hold on to that image, a bridge. We just drove into Wales uh, last week over the, I think it's called the Prince of Wales Bridge, a astonishing, beautiful bridge that takes you right over a long body of water. And what this is an image is here is, here's you and me, and here is God. And there's a vast stretch between us. We need someone who can bridge that, and that was the priest's job. In two ways. Firstly, the priest was a, a kind of like a pastor and like a, a religious uh, leader who, who, who prays for you and teaches you and, and brings, in their case, sacrifices and offerings to God. But also, there was, the priest had a part, what we call a pastoral role. The priests were actually, they were to care for people, come alongside them, sympathize with them, get to know them. And the, the priest, therefore, would make the idea of the bridge a reality. So he's doing that kind of high, you know, lofty stuff, but he's also right down with you at your side. And that was just a human priest. And that's the context that this writer is giving us because what he's saying is Jesus is the culmination of the entire idea of a priesthood. He's the ultimate priest. And verse 2 says that the high priest is able to deal gently with the ignorant and wayward, because he himself is subject to weakness. Some other translations, I think this is a bit better, say he was beset with weakness. He was beset with it. One translation says he was submerged in weakness. It carries the sense of being surrounded by weakness like a cloth you can't you're covered in weakness. Listen, do you really believe that Jesus felt that weak? Have you felt that kind of weakness? I'm so weak. I felt that. I really hate it. We've been here, my wife and I have been back at this church for 18 months. It's going pretty well, I think. We've had a lot of encouragement and support. If I might speak personally for a moment, the last three or four weeks, I've felt weak all the time. We just came in. I've lost confidence. It's like it's eroded away. We, had a, we started a new ministry with men, a Monday night thing, doing four Mondays. I was nervous about it for a whole week. I don't know why. Actually, I do know why. Because I was afraid it wasn't going to go well. Confidence gone. So weak. Maybe you feel like that. Here, you've got to understand this. Jesus Christ felt that. We know he's powerful. But he, it says that not only was he tempted, he knew what it was to feel really weak and he still 
remembers that. He has taken his full humanity right into the presence of God. He was and remains one of us. He is a truly human being. He still remembers what it was like to be weak, to get sick, to be tempted over and over from every angle. Some people have made the mistake that Jesus stopped being human after his death. He went into heaven you know, as a divine being. But one of the central beliefs of the New Testament is that Jesus remains fully and gloriously human and that it is as a human being that he rules the world. He's a man still. And when he represents you before the Father, he isn't looking down on you from a great height and patronizing you, poor wretch, who can't do much for themselves. He can truly sympathize because he's been there. He knows what your life is like. And he also remembers what it was to weep. And not just a little brave tear that guys cry and then wipe away. Sobbing. Our writer knows all about the Garden of Gethsemane, and that's where he gets the amazing words of verse 7. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverent submission. Son though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered. By the way, Jesus' prayer, the answer to it was no. You can't have the cup taken away from you. You must suffer that much. Was there ever a moment of greater weakness in the life of the eternal Son of God? Imagine an olive grove, a place where olives are crushed in the Middle East. There's a lingering warmth in the air. Walk through the garden, enjoy the gentle sounds of the night and the fragrance. The sky above is clear, you can see the stars. It's a charming experience. And then you see something unexpected. You come to a clearing, you see a number of men sitting or lying on a variety of postures and all of them are fast asleep. But in the distance, there's another man lying on the ground, and he's got his face on the ground. And this man is very much awake. And as you watch more closely, you see that his entire body is twisted in agony. The expression on his face is tormented and grief-stricken. He is sobbing. He calls out with heart-piercing cries. And such is the intensity of his pain that drops of blood ooze from his pores and fall to the earth. You've never seen another human being in such distress. This is the Garden of Gethsemane and you're looking at Jesus. What's going on? It is the night before his crucifixion. He's going through a horror of anticipation. He feels so weak and his closest disciples are sleeping. And in fact, I think it's Luke's gospel that says angels appeared and helped him. And some of the very early copies of that, the people who were copying it took those verses out because they were a little bit embarrassed about the idea that Jesus needed help. But the experts, the textual critics, have concluded those verses were original. He did need the angel's help, the eternal Son of God. Emotion bursting through. Father, if it be thy will, let this cup pass from me. Even so, not my will, but thine be done. The anticipation of the cross broke his heart. The waiting was an agony of grief. And this writer to the Hebrews knows all about that and he points out that Jesus did not suffer bravely and in silence. He wept and cried out. Do you ever ask, Lord, do you understand my pain? 
Do you really love me? Here we see the answer. Five thoughts to close with. I know it's been a long sermon. First, see how Jesus is beset with weakness. Do you know him like that? He is fully able to sympathize with you. He's not a hard taskmaster. Secondly, see how Jesus deals compassionately and gently with those who are ignorant, foolish, wayward, wandering off. That means you. So how do you think he feels about you when you've messed up yet again? Compassionate, gentle. Thirdly, if Jesus deals that compassionately with people like us, how should we deal with people who are Muppets? Fourthly, see how he suffered. He's not stoic. He's not grin and bear it. With loud cries and tears. He was in bits. Do you think you could allow yourself to suffer like Jesus did? Fifth, notice how Jesus' mission and his maturity to finish his mission came through being weak, through suffering, and through tears. That is true for us too. So don't curse your suffering and weakness. It is transforming you into someone glorious. Let's be quiet for a few moments.